Uh, good morning, everybody. Can I see with these glasses? You're all smudged. Um, so, <clears throat> right. It's great to see everybody here. So delighted to have you all um, to hear the gospel preached. We're in Matthew this morning, and our brother Rob, Rob Stephen, is going to be speaking from God's word. <clears throat> but before we'll do that, we'll sing a number of hymns. Um, I didn't decide on my. Two hundred and ninety-nine. <clears throat> Two hundred and ninety-nine. If you've got uh, the orange book, I hope that's been handed out. <clears throat> it speaks about the change that can, comes about as a result of trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. What a wonderful change in my life has been brought since Jesus came into my heart. I have light in my soul, which for which long I had sought since Jesus came into my heart. And it speaks about stopping from sinning you know it, it changes our lives and it gives us hope and it gives us rest about death and everything like that so after the introduction we'll stand and sing 299 <clears throat> i 
give thanks for this new day, for a day when we are able to gather as a church of your people, as a, a group uh, of Christians who are able to uh, consider uh, the fact that Jesus has died upon the cross and to consider in our lives whether we are trusting in him or not. We give thanks, our God, that there is no other name under heaven uh, given among men whereby we must be saved. It's only through Jesus Christ that we can be saved. And our God, we thank you that uh, the way that when we trust in him, we have a new life. The old passes away. All things become new. And you give us that Holy Spirit strength to live as we ought. And we cease from our wanderings and goings astray. And as a result, it gives us hope for the future. It gives us hope for time as well, so that when things get hard, we're able to cope with these things because we have your strength and we have each other as well. So, Father, we pray that uh, each of us today would be able to consider, are we in the faith or not? Do we have Jesus as our personal friend, as our personal saviour? Are we following him day by day? We ask our God that you would help us to question ourselves and make us think as to whether we have trusted in him or not. And we pray, our Father, that if the answer is no, then that someone, uh, everyone, would be trusting in him today, from the youngest to the oldest, because we know that the, the faith and trust in Christ is, is all that we need. It is very simple. It is to trust in Christ, to rest upon what his work is, what his, what his work is at the cross and at Calvary. We think, our God, of how... Uh, our sins were many, uh, and our sin, sinful problem, just being sinners, is a problem because we cannot come close to you. But when Christ shed his precious blood, he made a way uh, for us to be, have forgiveness of sins. And Father, we give thanks for the way. Our Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray that we would bless you day by day as we go through our lives because of him. So we thank you again that uh, we're here today. We think of many who can't be here. Uh, we remember David and Wendy. We think of Verity and Christopher and poor Theo down in hospital in Edinburgh. Lord, we just lift them up before you. We think of all that Theo's gone through this week. We think of the secretions on his lung and we thank you for taking some of them away. And we pray that you would continue to give him strength to do all that he has, all the physiotherapy that he's doing. We pray that it would be possible for him to have a clear chest, a clear lungs very, very soon and for him to be back up the road where, where he ought to be. So we, we pray as well uh, for our sister Fiona as well. We think of how she has lost her husband this week. We pray, our God, that you would bless her and help her to be strong in the Lord and of good courage. We thank you that there is joy to be found in the Lord but we know our God that these times are hard so we pray especially for Fiona and we lift her up before you and ask that you would just be close to her at this time and she would feel that closeness but today our God as we listen to your word we pray that we would speak you would speak to us each one of us and we pray that the children as they go to Sunday school as well that they would be blessed too so we give thanks for this all these things for being here today and especially for the Lord Jesus his name we come. Amen. 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 Uh, now, <clears throat> in Christ alone.
was I put my page numbers down and then I seem to lose the page. Uh, in Christ alone, number 361. <clears throat> 361. It's the only way that we can be saved through the Lord Jesus Christ. He's done so much for us and this is what this hymn is all about. In Christ alone my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm.
Okay, right. Um, the intimations for this week. Um, I left my sheet down there, so it's going from memory. Uh, we have the prayer meeting tonight at half past five, and at six o'clock we have the ministry of God's Word where we're uh, going through starting Galatians. Uh, our brother Paul is speaking there. Um, in the afternoon, there is the Summerhill School, and Andrew is uh, speaking there. So we pray for him as he speaks to the old folks there. Uh, Monday clubs on Monday night at quarter past six. Uh, and there's a good number coming, so keep on praying for that work so that the children would get uh, more of the Word of God in their lives as well, especially in these dark days in which we live. Um, on Wednesday night, we have... Or, or well, Wednesday morning, it's a really full week this week, um, we've got the mother and toddlers at 9 o'clock. Uh, there's tracking that starts at 9.30 as well. And in the evening, there is the prayer meeting, uh, uh, the prayer meeting, yes, at 7.30. So it's great to be there. Prayer is so important for the Christian. Keeps us close to the Lord, keeps us close to each other as well. So it would be good if you were there for the prayer meeting. On uh, Yabs is on on Tuesday night, actually. I forgot that one. So, uh, so the young adults Bible class as well. But then on Thursday, there is the exchange club as well. So we can pray for all these meetings uh, and just ask the Lord to bless them. Uh, we are also um, doing track work on Saturday morning as well at 9.30 or 9.45. 9.30 I think it is at the hall here um, so you're welcome to help in that to distribute the word of God to the folks in the area um, I, I was looking for a hymn but I'm not sure if it's in here my heart is filled with thankfulness no I don't 370 right there. <laughs> I don't know. Should have gone to Specsavers. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> my heart is filled with thankfulness to him who bore my pain, who plumbed the depths of my disgrace and gave me life again, who crushed the curse of sinfulness and clothed me with his light and wrote his law of righteousness with, with power upon my heart. Now Rob will come to speak to us uh, from Matthew's Gospel. Uh, after this, but during this hymn, maybe later on, because we enjoy your voices, uh, children, uh, there's the Sunday school through the back, so you can go through there if, if that's your, your place. <clears throat> okay, so after the introduction, we'll stand to sing and then Rob will come and speak. Thank 
Well, it's nice to see everyone here. We are going to read from Matthew chapter 16. We're continuing our studies here on Sunday mornings in the Gospel of Matthew. So, Matthew chapter 16, we're going to read the first 23 verses. This is a bit of a, an experiment with the technology. If it doesn't work well, please be understanding. We have a lot of technology on the go this morning. Matthew chapter 16, reading from verse 1. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they'd forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O ye of little faith, why are you discerning among yourselves, sorry, discussing among yourselves the fact you have no bread? Do you not perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the five thousand and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the four thousand, how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered them, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. 
From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray this morning that as we consider these verses, that by your spirit you would help us to understand the truths contained in it. And that you would bless each one as we do this. In Jesus' name. Amen. Before we come to consider the verses, uh, I want you to remember what Ian said a few weeks ago when he was speaking. He said, geography matters. So just for a moment or two, we're going to think about the geography of Matthew 15 and 16. Quite a lot of what we read in chapter 15 and 16 is focused round about the Sea of Galilee. Now, hopefully you can see that's not terribly well in focus, but Sea of Galilee is right in the centre of the map, and you can see a number of towns. There's Gennesaret, there's Capernaum, and Magdala, and then Tiberius is where the modern city of Tiberius is, on the west shore of the Sea of Galilee. So quite a lot of the things that we read about in Matthew are centred round about the Sea of Galilee. The feeding of the 5,000 was probably quite near to Galilee. We're not sure, because there's no further details, about whether it was on the left-hand side, the west side, or the east side. When Ron spoke on chapter 15, he mentioned that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law came to Galilee to dispute with Jesus. So we know that that was in Galilee. But then in chapter 15, verse, verses 15 to 29, Jesus withdraws to the region of Tyre and Sidon. If you look right up to the top left-hand corner of the map, you'll see Tyre, and it's on the coast. So Jesus and the disciples may have gone over the mountains, or they may have travelled further west and then up the coast to get to that area. But after verse 29 in chapter 15, it's back to Galilee for the feeding of the 4,000. And again, we don't know precisely the location for that, but in verse 39, we read that he was in Magadan. Now that doesn't exist today. It could be what's marked there as Magdala, or, in fact, it could be a suburb of Tiberius. There's a good case for it being that. In this chapter, Jesus and the disciples cross the lake. You'll notice that as you're reading the gospel, quite often the disciples are in a boat and they're traveling. So no public transport, remember, in these days. So the boat would have been very useful for going from one village to the next or going across the Sea of Galilee. And so they cross the Sea of Galilee and they 
travelled to Caesarea Philippi. So if you look at the very north tip of the Sea of Galilee, follow the valley right the way up to the top of the map, and you can see Caesarea Philippi up at the top. So that's the geography of some of these texts that we are reading. Um, across the Sea of Galilee, if you look horizontally on the map from east to west, the longest part here would be, a, would be about seven miles. So when the disciples of Jesus and the port are crossing the Sea of Galilee, it's a distance of about seven miles. Walking from the northernmost tip of the Sea of Galilee up to Caesarea Philippi would have been about 20 to 25 miles, depending on how far up they went. So that gives you an idea of the geography of some of these texts that we're reading. There's a picture of Galilee. I was trying to decide whether it's north or south of a feeling. That's the south end of the Sea of Galilee, um, popular tourist destination. I don't think it would have looked much different in the days when the Lord Jesus was there. Caesarea Philippi um, has a number of important historical uh, buildings, could you classify them as? It has two temples, um, or there, it had two temples, not much of them remain. One was constructed to pay homage to Caesar, and the other one was the uh, Greek god Pan. So there's Caesarea Philippi. Don't think you'd have much chance of going to see that today because it's in a fairly hostile area. So this morning we're going to think about the first 23 verses of chapter 16. And it breaks into three sections really. There's the first bit which has to do with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then there's the discussion with the disciples, and then there's the journey to Caesarea Philippi. But there's five words that I'm going to give you um, to put over these verses. So there are five words in this part of chapter 16. First of all, opposition. When we read these verses, starting in verse 1, we read this, and the Pharisees and Sadducees came. And when Ron talked in detail about the Pharisees in chapter 15 when he was speaking, he mentioned to us that this is the surprising thing. The opposition to the Lord Jesus is from the people that we would have least expected. These are the religious people. These are the people who are very devoted to Judaism and they are the opposition. They're in opposition to Jesus. Matthew chapter 9, 12 and 15 tells us that the scribes and Pharisees challenged Jesus. The scribes were experts in the text of the Old Testament. The Pharisees, we thought about them already. But here in chapter 16, they're joined by the Sadducees. And that's surprising because 
the Sadducees and the Pharisees didn't get on. This is very much an unholy alliance, is the phrase that we use when we have people that would not normally see eye to eye grouping together. It's almost as if you hear the doorbell ring and when you go to answer the door, it's canvassers from political parties. But there's a difference. The Labour Party and the Conservative candidate are together, campaigning together. That just wouldn't happen. And so it's a bit like that, but in a different context here. We've got the Sadducees and the Pharisees. It's interesting, isn't it? The people and groups who oppose the Lord Jesus Christ and who oppose the gospel. And it's the same today. Opposition to the gospel, you can find, comes from widely diverse individuals and groups who quite happily work together to oppose the things of God. And in fact, in Acts 4, verse 25 to 27, Peter quotes Psalm 2. Why do the heathen rage? The people imagine a vain thing. And he goes on there to think about the anger of sinners against God and against his son. And Peter says, Pontius Pilate and Herod conspired together. Now there again is an unholy alliance. Two individuals who normally would not get on together and they conspire together to oppose the Lord Jesus Christ. So we've got opposition here. And again, as Ron pointed out, these people must have travelled especially to Galilee to mount their opposition to the Lord Jesus Christ. And here they are again, they're in Galilee, and they take the initiative this time. So they come to him in verse 1, it says they came to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. It's incredible, isn't it? Because... If we think about the verses we've read in the gospel before that, there were plenty signs that the Lord Jesus did. And here they come and they ask for a sign. They ask him, what sign are you going to do for us? Why did they do that? There's plenty evidence already in plain view. The interesting thing when you read the Gospels is the amount of space that is taken up with arguments and discussions with the Pharisees and the scribes. John Stott wrote many books during his lifetime. One of the books he wrote fairly early on was called Christ the Controversialist. And in it he looked at all of the disputes that the Lord Jesus entered into with people like the Pharisees. And Stott makes the point that uh, sometimes we think that the Lord Jesus was very gentle and meek and didn't want to cause any problems. But Stott makes this point. When it came to the truth of God, he was quite happy to stand up 
against these people. Why? Because they were wrong. And the main charge against the Pharisees that we read in the Gospels is that of hypocrisy. They claimed to be religious, but in fact, they were anything but good people. But I want to just mention one thing that I think shows in this request that they made. They came to Jesus and they said, what sign will you do for us? I think that this shows insincerity on the part of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Insincerity in their attitude towards the things of God. Famous film, film actor and director Woody Allen said this, I just wish God would give me a sign, like putting money in a Swiss bank account in my name. That's what he said, that's a famous quote from Woody Allen. Now, that is insincere, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees were insincere in this sense. They didn't have the right attitude towards the Lord Jesus and towards the Word of God. When we come to the Word of God, when we come to God himself, we need to be sincere. We need to recognise that we're coming to God. A number of biblical texts would support this. Think of the example of Job in the Old Testament. If you read the book of Job, you read about a man who was wealthy, he had a family, he was doing very well, and everything went wrong. He lost his family. He lost all his wealth. And he lost his health as well. And his friends come to try and console him and they discuss various ideas. And eventually Job says he would like to question God. There are questions he wanted to ask him. And at the end of the book, God speaks and God says to Job, Who is this that darkens my counsel with knowledge? And then God begins to detail a number of things he says. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? And God goes on to mention a number of things. And of course it's to show that Job is out of place to question God. Sincerity is required when we come to the presence of God. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 5 and 2, God is in heaven, we are on earth, so let our words be few. That's, a, a, that's an exhortation to be sincere. And Jesus refused to give these people a sign because they weren't really sincere. It's also interesting to see that signs never really convince such people. In the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man who dies and he's in torment, is told that even if somebody came back from the dead, people wouldn't believe that if they don't believe Moses and the prophets. And so Jesus refuses to give them a sign because of their insincerity. But he does say this, um, the only sign that will be given is the sign of Jonah. 
So he refuses to do any sign for the Pharisees and the Sadducees who came to test him, but he says to them this, the only sign that will be given to this generation is the sign of Jonah the prophet. Do you remember when Jordan um, dealt with the text earlier on where there was a bit about Jonah? The sign of Jonah the prophet, I used to think it was the fact that he was three days and three nights in the stomach of the wheel. But actually, no, the sign of Jonah is Jonah himself. What happened was he was inside the whale, and the whale vomited him up, and God came to that disobedient prophet and said, go to Nineveh. And this time he went to Nineveh, and he himself was the sign. A man who came back from the dead to bring them a message from God. So what was Jesus talking about here? He's talking about his death and his resurrection. That's the ultimate sign that is given to men and women. So this morning we're thinking about opposition. We're thinking about the Sadducees and the Pharisees, their insincerity. And the question that comes to us this morning is, are we sincere in our attitude to the word of God and to God himself? But then moving on, the next thing we see is confusion. As they get into the boat, Jesus and the disciples are in the boat, and Jesus says to them in verse 6, Beware the leaven of the Pharisees. The disciples are confused, and in verse 7 they think it's about literal bread, and they ask the question, Is Jesus saying this because we forgot to bring any bread? Jesus has to spell it out for them. He says, didn't you learn? Didn't you understand? And in verse 9, he mentions the feeding of the 5,000. There was that little boy with the loaves and fishes, and the Lord Jesus multiplied that to feed the 5,000. And there were 12 baskets left over. And then there was the feeding of the 4,000. 4,000 people were fed from loaves and fishes again, and there were seven baskets left over. And those who spoke on the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000, pointed out to us that the 5,000 were Jewish people. Interesting that there were 12 baskets left over. Doesn't it remind you of the 12 tribes of Israel? And the feeding of the 4,000, seven baskets left over, the perfect number. The point that Jesus is making here is that he is, as is pointed out in John's Gospel, he is the bread of life. People need bread to live, but what we really need is the bread of life. It is Christ himself. And so in the feeding of the 5,000, he's saying, I am enough for the people of Israel. In the feeding of the 4,000, he says, I am enough for the Gentiles. And so the disciples realise that it's not bread, literal bread, that the Lord Jesus is talking about, but it's the teaching of the Pharisees. Leaven makes bread rise. 
course, the people of Israel were familiar with unleavened bread because that was particularly to do with the feast of unleavened bread. But normal bread had yeast in it, had leaven in it that would make it rise. And the Lord Jesus is using leaven here in a negative sense. The teaching of the Pharisees, because of their hypocrisy, probably is meant by the leaven, their hypocrisy distorts everything. And therefore, their teaching is dangerous. And the disciples are confused about what Jesus is speaking about here. But we need to remember that there is false teaching. And false teaching is damaging, just like the teaching of the Pharisees. But then as they come out of the boat and they begin their journey, they move up the Jordan Valley to Caesarea Philippi. And we can see some of the remains there in the screen. It was a city that was developed by Herod Philip. Kevin helpfully gave us uh, an overview of the Herods. Herod Philip, this was his territory. Remember that Herod the Great had the four uh, members of his family that the kingdom was split up into, and Herod Philip had this part. So he fortified Caesarea Philippi, and there was a temple built there for Caesar. That's what they used to do in these days. If you want to keep in with Caesar, just build a city and name it after him. That will stand you in good stead. But it also had a pagan temple to the Greek god Pan. And some of the things that went on there you couldn't mention even today in public. So this wasn't a, a place, a safe place to talk about the word of God, the Old Testament, to talk about the Messiah. This is hostile territory. And as they come into hostile territory, Jesus asks them an important question. In verse 13, he says, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? You know, Christianity isn't something to be engaged in while you're indoors in safety. The importance of Christianity is in a hostile world. You know, just as Jesus was questioning his disciples and asking an important question, in a hostile world today, this question comes to us, and it's a question of identity. Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, and Jesus is using the title Son of Man about himself here. And it's a question of identity. If you get somebody's identity wrong, it can have consequences. I remember a long time ago a story in the Press and Journal about some fishermen um, on the River Spey, I think it was, and they were using nets to catch salmon. And um, this morning they were pulling in this big net with, with all the fish in it. And a lady came up and she spoke to the man who was coordinating it all. She said, are these fish fresh? 
And the man who was coordinating it all was a bit grumpy. He said to her, of course they are wifey, can't you see they're still wriggling? Then it emerged, the lady that he was speaking to was Her Majesty the Queen. And of course he was absolutely mortified. And the P&J wanted to do an interview with him and he said he couldn't even talk about it because it was so embarrassing. And you can understand that, the embarrassment of calling the Queen wifey. He would live with that for the rest of his life. But you know, apart from the embarrassment, that wouldn't really have any further effect. But when we come to this question, who is Jesus of Nazareth? This is a question that has eternal consequences. So, what did the disciples answer? Popular opinion was John, the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And we can understand why people identified the Lord Jesus as possibly being John the Baptist. Herod thought that. When he heard about the miracles that were done, he said, this is John the Baptist risen from the dead. So there are comparisons of John the Baptist with Elijah, that prophet who was so zealous for the Lord. Jeremiah, who faithfully proclaimed the word of God despite opposition or perhaps one of the other prophets. But then Jesus says to the disciples a much more personal question. Who do you say that I am? That's the question that comes to all of us today. Who do you say that the Lord Jesus is? And we see Peter's reply. He says, the Christ. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Two things there. Peter identifies the Lord Jesus as being the Christ. That's the Messiah. And Peter's affirming that the Lord Jesus Christ, he is the promised Old Testament person, the designated person that was promised by many prophets who would come. And he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He acknowledges that this is a divine person that he's speaking to. Now I wonder today, as you sit and listen to these verses from Matthew's Gospel, what would your reply be to this? Who do you say that I am? And in verse 17, Jesus says to Peter, You're blessed because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And that's an important statement from the Lord Jesus, showing us that it's divine revelation that helps a person to this position. So we've got identity. Very quickly, we need to move on. We've got certainty. He then turns to Peter and he says, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. This is one of the most controversial parts of the word of God for interpretation. And it's because of the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church that the... Uh, the Pope is the successor of Peter and 
They base it on this text. And Protestant churches have taken a different view. And to be honest, many Protestant interpreters jump through hoops to try and avoid following what the Roman Catholic Church taught. Do you know, the simplest way is just to take the Lord Jesus' statement as it stands. He says, you are Peter. His name means rock. And then he says, and on this rock I will build my church. I think he was meaning Peter himself. And he was designating Peter as having a crucial foundational role in the early church. Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost and preached and 3,000 people were converted and added to the church. Peter was the one who got the vision about going to Cornelius. And so Peter had a very important role, but so did the other disciples. And Paul says in Ephesians that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And so I think, take the statement as it stands, on this rock I will build my church. And Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What a statement of certainty. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The church here isn't an organisation. Here the church is all true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. All those who have confessed faith in Christ for salvation belong to the church. And Jesus says, I'm going to build my church. I'm going to keep on going and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now the word for hell here is Hades, which really means death. Some people have pointed out that in Genesis 22, where Abraham is on Mount Moriah, and he's prepared to offer his son as a sacrifice, and God stops him, and then God makes some promises because of his devotion. And he says to Abraham, your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. Some people think there's maybe a connection there. Perhaps the Lord Jesus was thinking gates of hell, meaning death itself. Death was not going to prevent him from building his church. We sing a hymn that says, death could not keep its prey. Jesus, my saviour, he tore its bars away. Jesus, my Lord. But it probably is wider than that, and it means that whether it's the powers of hell, whether it's death, none of these things are going to thwart Christ building this church. We see that down through the years, don't we? I can remember, I've told this story before, I can remember sitting through in the back hall when I was a teenager at the midweek meeting, and we had a brother in Fernie Lee at that time, Charlie Taylor, he was one of the trustees on Lord's Mark Trust. So he used to regularly get bundles of letters from missionaries. And he stood up one night and he was, he was very upset by this. A missionary from Italy said that Albania was completely close to communism at the time. 
and uh, he said in the letter there were no known Christians in the country of Albania and Charlie read this out and he was very upset about this and asked us to pray about it well of course there were Christians in Albania um, and look at it now there's my younger brother He's, he lives there and works in northern Albania and if you go there today you will see the church is being built and that story could be replicated all over the world the Lord Jesus is building his church and then he says in verse 19 I will give you the keys of the kingdom now what does that mean well I think a clue is in Luke 11 verse 52 where Jesus says to the Pharisees you've taken away the key of knowledge you did not enter yourselves and you hindered those who were entering the Pharisees stopped themselves and other people's other people by their teaching from hearing the truth of the gospel and entering the kingdom and so he's saying to Peter you've got the keys for the kingdom you've got my teaching you've got my truth and you're going to use that to loose and to bind we don't have time to look at that further so we've got certainty but finally we've got necessity just as we finish moments perhaps after making such a great statement about the Lord Jesus you are the Christ the son of the living God Jesus is telling the disciples that he must suffer he must die at the hands of the religious leaders and Peter rebukes him and the Lord Jesus has to say get behind me Satan here he didn't understand something that a lot of people don't understand the necessity of Christ's death and that's where this gospel is leading it's going to lead us to Jerusalem where the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be taken put through a mock trial and he will be crucified outside the city now humanly speaking that's a tragedy but that is the gospel that Christ died for our sins and it was a necessity it was absolutely necessary for us to be forgiven and to be in a relationship with God so as we close this morning we think of these verses from Matthew's gospel may God challenge our hearts to see where we stand what we think of Christ whether we understand the truths of the gospel and whether we believe let's pray father we thank you for your word we thank you for the truths that we've thought about this morning and we pray that as we think of these things that we might be impressed with the greatness of the Lord Jesus he is the Christ the son of the living God who had to go and suffer these things father we pray that we may all be trusting in him for salvation for we ask this in his name amen
time to sing one more hymn. <coughs> uh, 167. 167. Something that the Pharisees and the Sadducees never had. Give me a sight, O Saviour, of thy wondrous love to me, of the love that brought thee down to earth to die at Calvary. Was it the nails, O Saviour, that bound thee to the tree? Nay, twas thy thine, thine everlasting love, thy love for me, for me. O make me understand it, help me to take it in, for it meant to thee, the Holy One, to bear away my sins. After the introduction, we'll sing one six seven. Amen. Uh-huh. 